I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today, I interview Robbie Engel, author of The Cure for Groups, How to Lead a Small Group People Will Talk About the Rest of Your Lives. Listen as Robbie shares about his experience leading 800 small groups in Andy Stanley's church, the North Point Community Church. How to create a good culture in small groups. Why the leader matters so much in making small groups work. Why trust is so essential in small group relationships as well as our relationship with God. How to ask good questions. And why a good schedule and memorable events make such a big difference. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Robbie Engel. Robbie wrote a book called The Cure for Groups, How to Lead a Small Group People Will Talk About the Rest of Their Lives. He's the president and CEO of True Face. He lives in Dawsonville, Georgia with his wife, Emily, and their eight children. And before he served with this company, he served for seven years as the director of adult ministry environments and men's groups for North Point Community Church in Atlanta, a church founded by Andy Stanley. Before that, he and his wife Emily worked in professional counseling and aid work for Samaritan's Purse. They served in Pakistan and Myanmar, overseeing international disaster response teams. They both received a master's in community counseling from Appalachian State University Robbie also holds a business degree from the University of Florida and a certificate in biblical studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. The CLIMB conference is coming up November 30th through December 3rd in Dallas, Texas. Please register. At the end of August, there's going to be a price increase, so please make sure and register. we got a lot of people coming. Just talked to Kevin Miller the other day. He's fired up about preaching. Uh, We've got just a great lineup. It's going to be so helpful, so comprehensive, no matter where you're at spiritually, whether you're a lay leader or a professional minister, campus leader, or whatever. It's going to be an awesome environment to stir the spirit and really inspire us to give our very best for God, especially in the coming year in 2024. So please register today at robskinner.com if you haven't already. Something really cool happened the other day. I got a phone call from Phil Booker. Phil leads a church in the D.C. area, and he said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but we are teaching from your class at Midweeks on the book Courage, How to Make This Life Count. And I mean, I was just super touched. I was flattered that he, you know someone was teaching the book in, in Midweeks, and I love that book. I mean, I've got a lot of personal stories in it, but he just shared that it was really, people were enjoying it, getting a lot out of it. And he asked me if I would teach the final class or the final chapter and the courage to take action. And so I I got online and met with this church and uh, we did it over Zoom. It was fun. I mean, it was awesome just seeing the disciples there, hearing their responses. Uh, I fielded a few questions, but it just made me feel good that people are benefiting from my writing. And and, uh, so just want to give a shout out to Phil Booker. Phil, thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it, and please be praying for Phil. He's he's battling a second round of cancer, and so please be praying for his good health and quick recovery. Thinking about you, Phil, and definitely praying for you. So thanks a lot. Robbie, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here, Rob. It's great to have you on the program, and I'm really thrilled because I, I like to have author interviews, talk to people about the books that they write, and you've written a book called The Cure for Small Groups. And let me ask you this. I was reading in your, your bio, you were director of men's groups for the North Point Community Church, which was planted by Andy Stanley. What you What did you gain from that time there? Yeah, I I gained a lot. I mean, it, he is... It, it was fascinating for the years working, and it was a really healthy organization learning from his leadership. But 
I was director of men's groups and then later over all the adult ministries. So men's, women's married groups. And so we had 800 small groups that I was over and it was, it was, a uh, you know, there's a, Andy would say in his book, deep and wide Sunday would be the wide, but spiritual formation discipleship is more conducive in smaller environments like small groups. Now, whether, so we had 800 groups and Andy would make comments like, well, if Sunday's doesn't happen, that's okay. Cause we have little churches happening in homes all over the city during the week. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but are those healthy churches? Are they leading <laughs> to growth or are they supper clubs or lame? Cause we've all been in small groups. Some can be transformational. Some are lame. And so there was a stewardship and a weight of responsibility of discipleship, which I believe is ideally in environments that are more conducive for being known and loved and practicing out this faith journey, which is smaller environments than traditional Sunday mornings, it, because God's designed us to grow through the context of relationships. So, you know, finding those, nurturing those and experiencing those relationships that actually lead to spiritual growth, that's the bottleneck in a lot of our churches. Right. That's the bottleneck to our own discipleship formation um, and that's the master plan of evangelism Jesus modeled where he did life with 12 and three in, in more intense depth. He had his three, his 12, his 70, his right. multitudes. And he said, this is how you change the world. This is discipleship. Like mm. he modeled a way that we have the opportunity and small groups are simply a structure of gathering with consistency right. and intentionality at a more conducive size of people that you can be more known and therefore more loved to process these this way of following Jesus. And so I when that's a big deal for the capital C church for all of us. Yeah. And when you survey the landscape out of the 800 groups, I mean, how many were healthy and leading to, you know, maturity and formation as a norm, not an exception. Well, how do you change that? What are the, how do you understand what differentiates it? So what I had at North Point was an R&D. I got paid to study and evaluate and think deeply about the art and the science of discipleship through relational environments like small groups. And I got to learn, I got to tinker, I got to uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm amazed that you don't have more gray hair trying to organize 800 small groups. <laughs> hey, 800 small groups was easy. I have eight kids, uh, all 12 <laughs> to four. That's where all this gray hairs come from. My eight kids. Wow. Well, in reading your, your bio, you've, you've been overseas in Afghanistan. You've done a lot of, of service work. Can you just talk briefly a little bit about that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I've, um, I'm, I have been along the ride of following Jesus and it has not been as what I've planned. I'm a pretty strategic visionary leader and it feels like every few years God would go, Hey, guess what now you trust me. <laughs> so I was a finance undergrad major. And then I went disaster response work internationally with Samaritan's purse. And then my wife talked to me into counseling and I was like, baby, I'm not sweet or empathetic or a good listener, right. but I'm passionate about relationships. And so I was a professional counselor for about five years. Then I ended up at a church, which I never wanted to work at a church because I was like, they're terrible places to work. I, <laughs> no thanks. And ended up at a church for nine years. Uh, and, that's, and, and the thread line has been, yes, this design of following Jesus and how relationships are critical to that, but it's a bottleneck in a lot of our lives. Yeah. And so how do we, um, you know, mature in the context of community more effectively? And there, and, you know, so then four years ago, I left North Point to take over True Face, which develops grace-based relational discipleship resources. And I was using their teaching at North Point so I bought enough copies of the book. Uh, I was buying boxes. And so the author called me one day and said, who are you? And I was like, I'm a huge fan of everything you guys write. They were in Phoenix. Uh, and so I got to know them and they were looking for a younger guy to take over. So I left to steward true face. Um, but it's it's been a journey and the thread line has been um, relationships right. and 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 following Jesus and how those... Um, are we are designed for those to be interconnected right what what led you to write the book 
this the book, The Cure for Groups, How to Lead a Small Group. People will talk about the rest of your lives. Yeah, I, well, it's pretty simple. I was, I could not find a resource to give to 800 small group leaders <laughs> on to understand the principles that differentiated great leaders from lame leaders. All of the small group stuff out there was about like, hey, here's our strategy. Here's our prescription. Strategies are not the problem. Ministry philosophy, perspective, health of the leader around principles of leadership mm. connected to our theology, our identity. That is this, That is what leads to transformation and makes a difference. But the, the books, the teachings focused a lot on, hey, here's our new approach to groups. And I'm like, no, I've seen dozens of different strategies and models of small groups. And that, and I've seen dozens be amazing and those same dozens of strategies be terrible. Right. That is not the root of the problem, but that's what a lot of our churches look to as the solution. Right. We just need a better strategy. We need a better equipping, a better study, a better resource to go through. And I would argue out of all the churches I've worked with, that's not, that. that's a symptom, not the source of the problem. Um, and so what are the principles of a healthy leader, the principles underpinning uh, good leadership that could be infused into any strategic framework? Are you semester-based, affinity-based, men's, women's, married's? How often do you meet? How long do you meet? doesn't matter, you know, as much as the source issue, which, um, so I, I was telling the true face guys, hey, you are painting a picture in The Cure and in Bo's Cafe of the type of community that is possible and we're designed for as Jesus followers. You need to help people like figure out how to experience that because you read these things like, oh, I want that. All of us, like, we want that community where we're fully known and fully loved. We want those guys and girls in our life that, you know, are going to be the the people carrying our casket and investing in our kids if I die tomorrow. Right. And like that level of connection and depth and intimacy that God's made us for yeah. as the body of Christ. Um, but so like, we want that. We don't know how to find it. it. Small groups are an opportunity. So the book, I said, you need to help us find that and build that in a practical way. And then like a year later, as I was asking them to do it, I, God was smiling and I became the president. So I had to put my money where my mouth is <laughs> and write a book so that a guy like me at North Point could have gone, hey, read this. Mm -hmm. This will help you understand principles or source right. dynamics behind you leading an effective small group. So right. it's a book for small group leaders. Right. I thought that was I couldn't good. find one. Right. Well, it has a it has a nautical theme to it. You talk about the voyage. You talk about you know going on a on a journey, and so I, I kind of want to go through chapter by chapter because it, it was interesting. It has a unique style. It it reminds me of like classic self help literature, like Og Mandino, um, where there's a story. And in the story, you intersperse, you know, some teaching. There's there's practical, but it's not just straight uh, nonfiction. You know, do this and this. But why did you choose that format where you've got some fictional characters wrapped up into the into the book? Um, two reasons. Partly because I wanted to challenge, and it was really hard. Uh, that's not <laughs> one of the reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was because the cure, which is the signature teaching of the 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 health of a leader, the theology identity of a leader. Uh, I, I played off that, that bestseller of true face to it. call it the cure for groups. Okay. We also have a book, the cure and parents. And so the cure is a signature teaching of the ministry. And that is part allegory, part teaching. And so it, it falls in line with our, our, our teaching. Um, but also because, no small group leader wants to read a book about being a small group leader. It's like a, for, for if you want a lot of book sales, you don't write a book uh, for small group leaders because who's going to read a book that wants to be a small group leader? So I said, I know this about small group leaders because I, I wouldn't want to read a book about being a small group leader. Right. So it's got to be short. It's got to be readable, like entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and, and stories are more easy to process through than like nonfiction. And it's got to be highly practical so that at every chapter they go, oh, it was readable and entertaining. 
And I know what to do practically that'll make a difference this week in my group and how I lead. They set me up uh, to lead more effectively. Right, right. Well, in there, you've got a couple of characters, Leslie and Stuart, who are, who are leading a small group. They, they reminisce about the small group they were a part of when they were younger, and they're trying to recreate that kind of atmosphere. And so they're kind of learning from an old wise master that, that, that led that original group. And I, I just couldn't help but laugh. There's a, a section where, where Leslie prays, God, please let this small group not suck. <laughs> and I thought everyone who's ever led a small group understands that prayer. I mean, just, it's like, I really hope this goes well. And, and sometimes the prayer is answered and sometimes it's not. But yep. especially in the wake of COVID, why do you think small groups are, are, are challenging? And why is it difficult to pull people together and make a good small group? Yeah, small groups are challenging because um, all kinds of, I, I mean, that's a that's a big question, but a couple. So so let's let's go to the principles of leaders that underpin potential problems. Um, there, there's a accent. Well, let let me start with two. First of all, all of us gauge opportunity cost with our time, talents, and treasures. So. Hey, come 60 to 90 minutes a week hmm. to give to something like that's a big ask right. in a very busy culture. Right. And so you asked me to give 60 to 90 minutes a week to something. My immediate response is, well, it better be worth it. There's an opportunity cost of that time. Yeah. And so there's a principle of it better be worth it. Now, what do I mean when I say it better be worth it? And what do you mean? Uh, let's say we're in a group together. Well, Rob hypothetically might say this would be worth it if I met some friends because I'm lonely and I'm wanting to connect to some people at church. Uh, Steve in the group might say this would be worth it if I have an aha and see God differently. I'm looking for the spiritual awakening. Right. Um, Susie might say this will be worth it if I learn if I really understand Romans. You know, if I can get into scripture and understand the complexities of Romans at a deeper level. So you got Steve, Rob, and I forget the made up name I just said of Susie <laughs> in a group. All three are disappointed because, and the leader is trying to facilitate something to meet all of them and therefore not meeting any of their needs and expectations. And therefore all of them are going opportunity costs, not worth it based on my expectations. Right. So if that's an assumption or or a hypothesis of a in a difficulty of small groups leadership and value then a best practice what i saw great leaders do because again i just studied great leaders and i had an r&d of studying that is verbalizing expectations up front so a simple conversation at the beginning with all three of them to say and that's chapter one of the destination. Do you know where you're going or what right. the goal is of why you're meeting? Right. And if you can't, well, there's a couple of things. You got to weigh in in order to buy into something. And if you've never verbalized that, then from day one in a group, you're, you have unmet expectations, which lead to frustrations, which lead to you going, this isn't worth my time, lack of commitment, death spiral of a group being lame. Right. And it's like, oh, if, you know, happiness is the delta between expectations and reality. Mm -hmm. Like it's probably easier to change your expectations than it is reality. <laughs> and so good leaders at the beginning of a group would go, we all are, there's an opportunity cost to this. We all have different expectations or hopes for what happens in the next year. Right. A year from now, we say, we arrived. This group was amazing. What does that mean to you? What, what, what would that be? Uh, best friend, doing life outside, if everybody just got that out on the table um, and said, like, it, they weigh in in order to buy in, they shape it, they feel heard, they feel understood in regards to their values. Mm. And then a good leader would say, well, can we, here's what I hear us saying. Um, obviously, we can't do all these things. It's like, oh, it's an exhale. 
of expectation, what if we could align behind a bearing, a destination of one or two primary goals? And those goals could be spiritual goals and relational goals of like, let's let's articulate, could we get behind a spiritual and a relational goal that could be our bearing that if we go off course, we can say, hey, we all agreed to that. Right. Think about that principle of leadership that is not a small group strategy. That's not like a, hey, how many weeks are we going to do? Are we doing that series, this series? It's a principle that underpins any strategy. Is right. it men's, women's, couples, family? What do you do? Do you do service options or not? Whatever. Um, that's a principle that would differentiate and align people around a hypothesis of why groups are lame, don't work. Um, and so that that's a that's a little No, that's, that's very helpful. Getting the buy-in and establishing the direction you're going. In the in the next you know in the next chapter after establishing the destination, you, you say who you are is more important than what you do. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, um, it, it's it's a it's a philosophy of leadership. Where do you have a philosophy of like an inside out approach or an outside in approach to leadership? Like leaders, you you can't go to a leadership training, learn some resources, best practices, and be a better leader. If everybody listening thinks right now about the, the leaders that they would want to be like, that they've met, bosses, friends, mentors, parents, grandparents, this person is a leader, and I would want to lead like them, that has to do with their character, their um, th- their core and the core of a faith leader, a Christian leader, is rooted in how healthy do we see God and how healthy do we see ourselves, which is the foundation of any of us. You can't, I, I can't do a three-hour leader training and equip somebody to be a leader worth following who shapes and cares for and walks with the people in their group as a in a in a pastoral way. No, that, that's a byproduct of 20 years of trusting Jesus, doing heavy lifting of introspection, evaluation. Um, you know, if I see God as an angry judge waiting for me to get my crap together, you know, how we see God is the greatest, how we see ourselves is the greatest indication of how we see God. And if I see myself as a failure through a lens of shame, that probably means I see God as a judge waiting for me to get my stuff together because I don't have my stuff together. Well, how we treat others, how we treat ourselves is the greatest indicator of how we treat others. And this is the up and out mentality of this way of following Jesus of love God, love others. They are interconnected. Because if I see myself through a lens of shame, because God is disappointed with me, then I'm not going to be able to model vulnerability because my shame is saying, Robbie, you're a failure. And if they really knew you and how messed up you are, no way they would trust you, like you, you know, be in this group. And so my shame says you're a screw up. Guilt says you screwed up. Shame says you're a screw up. Shame connected to my view of God, who also is waiting for me to get myself stuff together, says you're a screw up. So I have to dance and pose. And then I'm a type leader that I'm trying to be vulnerable, but it's not because I'm not secure enough. And shame is screaming right below the surface. And so I'm posing and dancing and I'm going to like, preach a little bit better and focus more on behaviors and and knowledge right. instead of like walking with and loving someone. Now, if I see God as a loving father who took care of me and knew like I am made righteous, do I see myself as a saint who occasionally sins or a sinner striving to be a saint? That's a theology question. And if I see myself imparted with his righteousness as a son of God, who's loved and liked and made right with him, then that takes away shame. And I see myself as a new creation, Christ in me. And out of that security, Rob, you can know the last 10% of me because my identity is secure and I can lead with vulnerability and humility. And out of that vulnerability, I I create an environment of high trust. Mm. And that trust allows us to be known and loved. And that that is the fertile soil for transformation and growth that starts with, ends with, is keyly connected to the leader. Mm. The health of the leader, which is who you are, is more important than what you do. And that health of a leader, I would say, is 60% of the equation. Right. So tips, tricks, best practices, all of the other chapters, 
Um, those are 25% of the equation. You know, if you looked at a small group effectiveness, 60% to 65%, I'd say is the health of the leader, theology, identity, maturity. 25% is best practices. That's what this book is for. Mm -hmm. um, this book is to equip the 25% practices like, hey, have an expectation conversation early on. That's a best practice. Right. And then 15% is like chemistry, you know, right. natural stuff you can't right. do anything about. So the cure uh, is the hundred page book that gets to what I just rambled about of how we see God and how we see others. Um, that's the essence of the core of a leader, which is 60%. The cure for groups, this book is the 25% of which um, chapter two, the captain, that that has to do with, are you leading with intentionality, vulnerability? And we're not going to go there, but that's deeply rooted in how you see God and how you see yourself. So so what you're saying is that, you know, your your book is not focused on the, the leadership aspect. That's something that takes a lot more time character development. It's not, not going to be a quick fix. So if you're a church leader, establishing and choosing the right leader is going to make a huge difference because if you end up... And, and developing of any adult ministry model, there's really four buckets of a holistic adult ministry discipleship approach. How you develop leaders, if a leader is the key, 60%, that is the secret sauce. Right. Then once they become a small group leader, how do you support them? Do you do huddles, one-on-ones? You know, Do you buy them a t-shirt and say, thank you? <laughs> how do you get people into groups, which is the customer journey from Sunday morning into, into a group? What does that path look like? Is it clear, effective, timely? Do you know what do you say from stage? Is, it, is there an orientation class, a short-term group, whatever? And then how you support your groups. How you support your groups is, do you give them sermon series? Do you have right now media? Uh, do you do semester-based groups, affinity groups, open close? That's where small group strategy comes into play. Right. And a lot of churches will try to solve the issue of discipleship by the new strategy, which is how you support your groups. But the secret sauce and the key is how you develop healthy leaders, mm -hmm. because that's 60% of the equation. And how you define, recruit, develop leaders it's easy to support a healthy leader it's hard to develop a healthy leader and so um we have some tool that's the type of stuff we build for churches to um that when i was at north point that was the one thing we focused on i had an advisory team that said what would it look like to change a culture of groups we we had a hundred men's groups and you can get a couple thousand guys together feel great about yourself at north point but we said, if we really care about this, changing a culture of our church around discipleship, it, the leader's the key. So what's the quality and quantity of leaders look like? So we developed a framework, uh, a nine-month framework, where I found the eight most amazing leaders I could find and asked them to open their lives and walk with seven or eight people for nine months around these like really processing view of God, view of self monthly meeting, three hours, once a month, and we all learn from each other. And that is the secret sauce that changed the culture because that led to 64 people being developed where they had a model of leadership and an experience of authentic community, which, which was a place where they could really wrestle with their, their theology and their identity. You know, mm -hmm. the real questions like, well, why don't I trust God with this aspect of my life leading to fear and shame and everything else? So that led to a healthy core leader group of 64 that then started leading groups. And it was way easier to support leaders, support the groups, get people into the groups once you had the healthy leader. So uh, thanks for asking this. And I, 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 this is the passion point of you could read the cure for groups. You could implement all these things. If you that's still symptom stuff, the 25%, not the source thing, which is a healthy leader, which is takes longer, slower work. You can't write a book to really, I mean, you can, but, uh, you know, really investing relational discipleship, a framework to make that easier. Um, that's what I care most about right. uh, at True Face. And, and we built a framework to help churches do that called the True Face Journey. It's a nine month framework for relational discipleship so that Rob, you would go, hey, I don't know who to invest in, not you, but hypothetical Rob, right. like, I don't know who to invest in and what to do. I want to pour my cup into others, make disciples. This is just a framework that makes it easier for you to go, oh, you you answered all the questions. You captured the best practices. 
And so you made it easy for my church, me, my wife and I to invest in three to four couples or six to eight guys for nine months. And that's free, by the way. I'm not selling anything on this podcast. It's yeah. We want to cause as much trouble in the kingdom as possible. <laughs> so we try to make all our stuff free to go, take it, white label it, steal it, call it First Baptist Discipleship. And, you know, who cares if more people fall in love with Jesus? But that, I know I'm rambling about chapter two of the captain. That's the key. That's yeah. a different process. And then it's supporting them with the tool, like the Cure for Groups, to know the destination, chapter one. Chapter three, which I know you're going to ask me next, is probably is different. And four and five, those are the different. Right. Yeah. Right. It really does tie back to what you said at the beginning about the master plan of evangelism and Jesus's strategy of of choosing a few people and and pouring himself into them. You, That's right. In the next chapter, you talk about establishing ground rules, uh, changing the culture, you know, shaping the culture of a group. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do you how do you do that without coming across as authoritarian, but at the same time not letting just a few, uh, for want of a better word, loudmouths or or you know just people who can't stop talking just control and dominate a group? Yeah, we we I don't like rules. If it's a rule, I want to break it. That's my issue. <laughs> But we, I think every family system, every team, every company has a set of spoken and unspoken rules. Good leaders just help speak out those rules to help shape the culture. And those think of those rules from values and guardrails. So if the group wants to value um, a depth of relationship, like we want a depth of relationship then a guardrail or a frame or a rule would be we are going to ask questions. So in order to, and we're not going to fix each other. So, so just that those couple words, like we're going to ask questions as a value and we're not going to fix each other because we value and our destination is authentic community. Um, if your destination is biblical understanding, then uh, a value would be, consistent engagement in scripture and a rule, a, a, a guardrail would be um, like, like really thinking deeply, like, did we ask the second question about that scripture or did we invite God to say, what do you have for me in this? Like that would be a rule. So if you can have three or four values and three or four guardrails, it just helps realign um, a culture that is conducive to where you're trying to go in your destination that you talked about a week or two earlier of, hey, we want to be this or that. And right. th those help so that when Sam is running his mouth or so that three months later, when you want to be an open depth of community and uh, where you ask questions, you don't fix each other. So when Sam, like Robbie, has the tendency to want to <laughs> fix, it's like, it's easier for Rob, the leader, to go, hey, Robbie, I love your heart of trying to jump, but I think we can we can walk with and ask him more questions than, I don't think he's looking for a solution. He's looking for a friend to walk with him in that. Right. You could pull me to the side and point back to that, that value and that framework a little bit easier so that we don't get derailed with that one person that we've experienced in groups that has the potential to derail. Exactly. As opposed to not having any rules and then all of a sudden coming down like Moses from the Mount Sinai and blasting somebody. Right. So that that's good. It, it, it's I, I love this topic. Small groups, I remember the first time I was asked to lead a, a Bible discussion in a dormitory, and I was so pumped. I mean, I wrote out this you know long, long thing, several pages, and I luckily I just ran it by my campus minister and I said, hey, here's my, my Bible discussion. And he said, Rob, that's that's not a discussion. That's more of a sermon. He said, where are your, yeah. where are your questions? <laughs> I, I didn't have yeah. any questions. I was just going to do all the talking, you know. But you talk yes. in the book about asking good questions. Then you go on to say, only truth that is trusted transforms. Um, what what does that mean? I mean, I like the consonants in that, in that phrase. It's definitely uh, memorable, but... What what are you, what are you talking about there? Yeah, that gets to ministry philosophy around discipleship, and that gets to a larger capital C church question of uh, historically the past 
decades, half a century, century in the West, um, there's a ministry philosophy underpinning a lot of our local churches that um, knowledge plus behavior equals godliness. And so the answer is, oh, they just need to know more. They need to like understand scripture better. And, and so that that's a powerful statement because I believe, and it's a ministry philosophy approach that truth informs, which is great and valuable. You got to have a healthy foundation of right teaching theology. I, right. I love the Bible and it's inerrancy and teaching. So truth informs, and that's important to have the right truth, but trusted truth is what transforms. Um, our churches are full of people who are the most knowledgeable scripturally of anybody over the past 2000 years, partly because we've swung to the side of knowledge equals godliness. And the way of Jesus that I see had a heavy um, teaching aspect of trusting truth, which means, God, what are you inviting me to take? Am I trusting you uh, with that truth? Am I trusting you with that truth with others? I can know all day the principle that I should serve others. Um, I partner in the kingdom and experience transformation when I serve others. Uh, there's a difference, and we are our churches are full of us knowing plenty about God and missing out on the peace and the freedom and and what Jesus made possible because we're in our head. We know we're stuck in our head, and and that's because truth informs. Trusted truth transforms. Trusting truth is relational, and that's what gets us the 18 inches from our head to our heart. Trusting truth with God and with others is why God's designed us to grow through the context of relationships and relationships are the catalyst to transformation, which is connected to trusting truths, which looks like love. And I, I see the definition of discipleship by Jesus in John 13, 35 of by this, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another not what you know and if you can quote that scripture, but by the way you love one another, that is what discipleship looks like. And that follows the essence of the way of Jesus, which is love God and love others. Love is a relational word, trusting truth. Um, and that that is that is where transformation happens, kingdom work happens. And that is a subtle but significant um subtle but significant shift than what a lot of us experience, which is why I think a lot of us are stuck knowing about God, but not knowing God experientially. Right. At least it has been for me most right. of my life. Right. As a professional Christian, I talk about relationship with God and I'm like, that's a cerebral understanding of what I think I'm saying, but it's not real if I'm honest. Right. Like I don't, I, I'm not experiencing him in an interpersonal relational way. Uh, as much as I'm saying it's a religion, it's a relationship, not a religion. No. Right. It's a religion because that was a cerebral concept for most of my life as a professional Christian. Right. Um, and so that that gets to the the source of ministry philosophy that a lot of us um, are looking for and longing for. Right. As a church leader, it's interesting to me. I, I've got a personal, you know, like gripe because sometimes I'll, I'll get people like, hey, I want to be fed. I want I want to be fed more. I want deeper teaching. And, you know, I'll be teaching I'm doing a series on Genesis. I mean, it's about as deep as it goes. I mean, I, I about as deep as I know without, you know, pulling out commentaries on the, on the pulpit, but it doesn't seem like many of those people at the same time are not, you know, they've got their own issues. <laughs> I don't want to go into it too much, but it's like, man, you know, it seems like there's something missing. I don't, I'm not convinced that if I come up with one more, Bible factoid that that's going to transform their life. There, there seems to be something missing there. And and I would say it's probably, I, I, there's a high likelihood. I believe that is core. That is actually in the way of the source of what they're looking for because of a philosophy that knowledge equals godliness and knowledge will be the catalyst for, uh, what they're looking for, peace, freedom, intimacy with God. And that was the way of the Pharisees. And that is not what Jesus told us is the path towards experiencing what he made possible. Right. The path towards experiencing what he made possible is a relational dynamic of receiving, of trusting and receiving what he did and who he is and what he made possible to us in regards to imparted with his righteousness, new creation, Holy Spirit. Right. Like that's a trust in receiving 
not a knowledge plus behavior. Now, that's an outside-in, inside-out approach. If I trust and receive Christ in me, out of on a healthy foundation of knowledge, but not the knowledge they're talking about, of right theology, understanding, uh, that is a trusting and receiving equals maturing into who I already am, not a learn more, sin less, do better in regards to be better with God. God's going, if you could do that, I wouldn't have needed to come. Like you can't, no matter what you do, that's the elder brother in the prodigal son, which I am. I'm the elder brother, not the, the younger brother. Um, I'm trying to earn my way into right relationship with God. And that is where I'm that guy, which I can speak to and going, man, I I bet if I read more consistently, I bet if I memorize more, I bet if I like could drop a couple nuggets about that Greek word, (laughs) I would like be a better Christian because that keeps me in control. Yeah. That keeps me, um, like, earning my way, striving my way, muscling my way into better standing approval to a God waiting for me to do more, be better, to be better with him because I broke that in sin. So I got to do more, right? He's like, no, you can't. That's the essence of the gospel of grace. I did. So you can't, you're made right. You are now a saint who occasionally sins, mature into who you already are as a saint. And that comes through trusting and receiving. That is grace. That is the gospel of like, that's a fundamentally different paradigm shift for me as a Christian. I've been saved, sanctification, uh, sorry, I've been, you know, saved. I've had salvation since I was 10 years old, became a believer. I didn't get grace till my twenties, mm-hmm. mid to late twenties. And that's, that was a paradigm shift of knowledge plus behavior equals godliness to trusting and receiving equals godliness out of a security in my identity as a son of God. Mm-hmm. That has led to the sanctification, which is very different than what I thought it was, which was, come on, Rob, teach us more Greek words and deeper teaching in order for me to feel better, know more, and hopefully do better, which is earning my salvation, which God's going, guys, you can't. That's why I did. And that is the religious trap of law, of, of the Pharisees, of all religious People with good intentions, Robbie, I see you. I'm that guy. I'm speaking to myself. And he's going, and you're missing out on love because you can't receive it. You've got to earn it. Right. I mean, I could just go off on that. I mean, I read this book recently and talked about how, you know, without trust, someone can tell you they love you. They care about you. They mean, you mean the world to them. But if you don't trust it, it, it's meaningless. Yes. And, and I just yes. think that in a relationship with God, I just, I was so convicted. I, I go, man, I need to trust God because dude, go ahead. You're going to love the cure, Rob. There's a line <laughs> in the cure that says, um, we can only experience love to the degree that we trust to your point. That is, that is such an important principle. We, it, we can experience love to the degree that we trust. And I, if I don't trust God, I can't experience his love, no matter how much love he has for me. And earning, striving, pleasing, which is connected to knowledge, which I need to know deeper teaching, is often the antithesis and in opposition to trust, which unlocks love, mm-hmm. everything we're made for and looking for. That is why this is subtle, but significant. And that teaching is more found in the cure. Yeah, I look forward to reading it. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the discussion in, in developing discussion. Okay, small groups, to be honest, you know, just kind of talking with guys, it can be like awkward. I mean, guys feel like this is just, I don't know how, how to say it in a way that's not going to offend anybody. But just how do you get guys talking where you still feel like a man and, and but at the same time is productive? Yeah. Um, model vulnerability and ask questions is the quick answer. Um, vulnerability begets vulnerability and, and that's hard because of our insecurities. So in goes back to the health of a leader in your security, model that for others to invite them and give them permission. And the, the, the structure chapter four or the ship design your time for transformation you know, most groups connect, learn, and then there's a live application part. Um, most groups connect poorly. We talk about sports, 
for 45 minutes and then somebody goes, okay, let's do the study. You open scripture, you watch a video, whatever. That's the learn piece. You implement some kind of teaching as a catalyst. And then you talk about it, what you think, head stuff, and then you go home and you go, why isn't this worth my time or leading transformation? Well, the the reason is because you're not connecting well, which the catalyst for the, the point of connecting well is to build depth of relationship and of trust to then incorporate learning so that you can segue into application. Mm. And a segue question that I saw great leaders ask is, after you read scripture, watch a video, instead of talking about your thoughts about it, ask a question of what faith step is God inviting me to take? Mm. Um, Based on that truth, what does he have for me in that? Uh, That's an application question to me, of which in, in a trusting environment, because we've connected relationally, then we have natural healthy accountability, not you should, did you accountability. And so those are some best practices of connect, learn, but then live. And don't miss the live part because ask a question, keep a question in your back pocket. Like, well, what does this mean for me personally? And lead the way. Right. Or uh, what is God inviting us to know or do? God, what do you want us to know? What do you want us to do based on what we just saw? For me, not for my wife, right. you know, <laughs> he needs her to do this. And under the connect part, uh, there's 12 questions in the book that uh, open-ended questions for an unbeliever versus a mature believer. To bring an open-ended question, like uh, a good open-ended question, like what's something you're proud of in the past 60 days? Um, that is, that will use that time instead of just socializing and talking about fantasy football, one good open-ended question can connect relationally at a degree of heart depth that will be easier for guys to segue out of their head into their heart in vulnerability in a, in a question like, yeah, what's something you've been proud of in the past 60 days? Right. Um, that that's better than, Hey, well, what's happening at work? So right. exactly yeah, that. Good questions can help guys get yeah, out of their heads. I like that. You do give some some easy questions that you can put in your pocket and take with you. That was very helpful. You talk about planning the route and scheduling memorable events. Can you explain why that's important? Yeah, I, there's an element in most groups that if you're not doing life together outside of your weekly meeting, you're going to have a ceiling of intimacy and connection. Um, and so... There's two parts of planning out three to five months at a time. One of those is that you can plan with intentionality around content because it was a pet peeve of mine. You do a study and it's like, all right, what do you want to do next? It's like, we're not honoring each other by the opportunity cost of 60. Like, let's proactively think. Let's do a book, then scripture, then a study and around a theme or different topics, which topics let's actually talk about it to plan out with intentionality instead of like, I don't know, what do you want to do next? I just heard of this one. Let's do that. Okay. You know, we don't lead our teams at work that way. Let's not lead our small groups that way. And the the second part of the intentionality is if it's not on the calendar, it's not going to happen. So if you pause every semester, every three to six months, and say, okay, let's look at the next six months. Do we want to do an overnight together? Do we want to get our families together? Do we want to do a service thing? Okay, uh, John, you're in charge of the service thing. Uh, let's just go ahead and mark our calendars. Uh, let's see, it's August now. Let's mark it for November 15th, and we'll figure out. John will figure it out, but let's put it on a calendar. Let's do an overnight trip. That helps bridge that depth, those shared experiences. And if it's not on the calendar, it's not going to happen. So that periodic route planning session was a best practice. I saw great leaders do to get this stuff on the calendar that made a difference. Right. Right. Especially when people are so busy. I mean, people are, That's right. I've never seen people busier. I mean, and anyway, it it's goes back to what you're talking about, about, you know, people, an opportunity cost, like does, is this really going to benefit me? So Robbie, thank you so much for your time. I I just want to ask you one final question. What advice would you give for the person who wants to make this life count? That it's different than what you think it is. The the first chapter of The Cure, it's an allegorical story. You're, You're on this journey, you're on a path, and you come to a fork in the road. And it said, this way towards pleasing God and this way towards trusting God. And wanting to make my life count, I said, surely it's pleasing God. 
And that leads to the room of good intentions with a lot of people doing a lot of great stuff for God and missing out on the essence of the gospel um, and, and the truth of what Jesus made possible. And I've been learning the depths of my pride that take me down the route of pleasing God in a motive statement, good intentions, which I was a missionary in Northern Pakistan, Al Qaeda territory. Like I was a pretty good high drive, high achiever at the pleasing, <laughs> uh, making my life count. And I missed everything of value. Mm. And that that is a paradigm shift that trusting God leads me to the room of grace. And I'm a part of awesome kingdom stuff, but it's very different motive, very different foundation, very different uh, yoke feeling of lightness versus I need to, I should. So that that is more important than anything else. And trusting God, be, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, partnering him with every day he doesn't need us, but we get to partner with him. It's pretty fun. And he will, that'll make your life count. Um, and it's very different how you get there than what a lot of us high drive, high achievers think. Right. Thank you so much. How would someone get a hold of you, Robbie? You brought up, I mean, so much stuff. You've got, of course you got your book plus your resources. How, how does someone reach you? Thanks. Uh, trueface.org, or we have an app, Trueface life app with a lot of these free relational discipleship, you know, tools, resources, or the podcast, True Face Podcast, we have, you can hear more ramblings there. So yeah, any of those places. That's, I, will, I will make sure and include that in the show notes and and hopefully people will go to you and, uh, you know, get, get more help. It's been super interesting. I really appreciate it. Really nice meeting you for the first time. And thanks for sharing both the book and your expertise. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First of all, hit the subscribe button and send the link to your friends. Let your friends know about it. Secondly, read and review one of my books, How to Plant and Grow a Church or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find them on Amazon.com. And if you read one of those books, please review it. It makes such a difference in enabling people to find the book when they're searching for books on church growth or personal growth. Because my goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day, and make this life count.